arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I grew up in Massachusetts and was first brought to Plymouth when I was nine years old. Well, maybe before that, but I don't remember. I had always heard how Plymouth was an important place. Seeing that big rock chiseled in 1620 under the portico was pretty cool. Because Plymouth was nearby, we went to Plymouth many times, and later in our sixth grade, we ended the year by having a party in Plymouth and a boat ride. We were transported around the bay in a fast-moving motorboat, and we could see what the pilgrims saw when they landed. In my sales career, as I got older, Plymouth was part of my territory. So what's the point, Mr. Fitton? This story starts because I was a sales rep listening to talk radio between sales calls, and I wondered about one talk show host whom I liked, but I imagined he had done something egregious in his past. I thought about this as I passed the radio antennas in Plymouth every day. Put that talk show host decades back at a similar radio station. I should note that I was enamored by Hitchcock's North by Northwest, a national monument Mount Rushmore was used in that movie. Thus, it was will that I would use Plymouth Rock as the focal point in time and as the murder of the crime. So day after day, I would jot down notes in my notebook, things that would be in the book that I was going to write. Getting back through time, that was a problem. A psychologist or a therapist with some wacky kind of therapy that could transcend time would be the way to do it. And dreams. I have wacky dreams all the time. And that's how Catherine would be brought back to the focal point, and the talk show host would only be 19 years old at the beginning of his career. He becomes a murderer. He needs a manager of sorts, and that's where Dimitri comes in. And his present-day ambitions are threatened by her dreams. And I added the fair, which I attended every year in Brockton, Massachusetts. Dimitri's great power would end up threatening Catherine. Tucker and Roz. Roz was needed so the book would not be mundane, dull, and lacking humor. So here we are nearing the end of the book with the present conundrum, meeting with the district attorney in the not too distant future. Well, good luck, guys. Episode 6 of The Butterfly and the Deadly Storm by Robert P. Fitton begins now. Chapter 30 Catherine popped her eyes open when the Ford bounced along the road. Tucker fought to control the car as a single headlight beam swung across the car's interior. Rizzo? I think so. Where the hell are we? asked Roz as she sat up. She turned toward the headlight. "Uh Uh-oh. We're on a dirt road along some cranberry bog, said Tucker, in a town called Hanson. We're not that far from Brockton, according to the last road sign. I don't see any side roads on this map, Tucker, said Catherine, positioning the map below the overhead light. You won't. We'd better hope we outrun him. A bullet hit the rear window. She ducked her head below the glove compartment. More bullets pinged the trunk. Get him, Tuck. Fat chance, said Tucker as he swerved the car across the dirt road. A cloud of dust formed in the headlight glare behind him. He's trying to hit the gas tank is what he's trying to do. That moron is crazy, shouted Ross, spread across the back seat. 
I'm gonna try and turn this baby around. If not, he'll get the gas tank. He's going to call Dimitri, shouted Ross. Oh, sure, Ross, you're in 1958 and you got him on a cell phone. Hold on, yelled Tucker. She peered over the dash in the headlights. A wide, flat area surrounded a long workhouse. And stay down when we head back. No argument here, Tuck. Without braking, Tucker revved the engine and cut the front wheels. Catherine tumbled against the door handle as she gripped the dash. More shots smacked the side of the car. Tucker accelerated and the car rotated 180 degrees. The workhouse shingles were silhouetted against the motorcycle light. Tucker kicked his foot into the accelerator. Rizzo fired his gun, but the bike spun out of control with the approaching car and the headlight disappeared. Ah, goodbye, good riddance. Tucker grinned and then backed up. I smell gas, shouted Ross. Tucker sniffed the air. Gas tank. Oh, God, shouted Catherine. Smoke, Ross screamed and crawled toward the door. Catherine pushed open the door and helped Roz onto the dirt road. Tucker rounded the front of the Ford. He cradled his arm between both of them and plowed down the bog embankment. A wandering yellow flame flared up from the trunk and smoke spread upward into the night air. Rizzo had uprighted his motorcycle and the headlight now shone over the scraggly embankment. He's coming back, shouted Roz. Quiet. The flame spiraled higher and the dark smoke mushroomed into the night. Tucker, Catherine, and Roz, covered in a wavy orange hue, hid behind the grassy slope. Rizzo's motorcycle engine slowed as he proceeded along the barn. His dark eyes and messy hair were distinct in the firelight. He stopped and straddled the bike. Then he slowly brought his gun upward. As he panned the weapon across the bog, the Ford exploded with a violent shockwave that sent debris flying over Catherine's head. Tucker covered the two women with his arms as the fire crackled and he pulled them toward the bog. Catherine crushed the budding cranberries as the fire lit the autumn skies. They staggered across the watery bog. From the embankment on the far side, a brilliant mass of orange-yellow flames engulfed the car. Where is he? Where is he? She asked. Tucker's eyes darted from side to side. Rizzo will check that car. The good thing is that it will be burning for hours. Now what? asked Catherine. Maybe he'll give us a ride on his bike, said Roz. Tucker frowned in the firelight. We get back to Route 27 before he snoops around that car. Plus, somebody will call the cops. She heard the motorcycle idling but did not see Rizzo. There he goes, said Roz, pointing to the left. He's going to call Maritokas is what he's going to do, said Tucker. Come on, we need to get back to that junkyard before Maritokas figures out we aren't in that car. Let's get to a phone, Tucker, and call Jansen, said Catherine. Tucker nodded as they headed along the woods and back to the road. Must be very powerful people behind Maritokas. Very powerful. The cold and dark rural road had no cars or payphones. Catherine's chilled feet ached. Roz rested several times on the rocks and the rail fences. Over two hours later, according to Tucker's watch, near 4.30 a.m., he flagged down a large blue Osmobile. A man with straight white hair, dark eyes, and a mouthful of oversized teeth said he had left for his early morning job at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Brockton. Tucker spoke for the group. Our car broke down way back in Hanson. You're still in Hanson? he said as they closed the doors. 
He put his hand inside a huge white bag and brought out a handful of popcorn. Name's Benny Bender. I love popcorn. Do you want any popcorn? Ross waved her hand. Right here, Benny boy. Right here. Ross is hungry. Benny scooped the popcorn into a regular-sized bag and handed it to Ross. Here you go. I never turn down money or food, she said as she munched. With butter. You eat that stuff for breakfast? asked Tucker. Why not? My name is Tucker. This is Catherine and Raj you met. Ladies? We're headed to Brockton, he told the guy. The South Village Salvage Junkyard. Oh, on this side of Brockton. Only 10 or 15 minutes up the road. That junkyard is the biggest until you get to Boston, said Benny. Do you know anybody up there, Benny? Don't know. Benny turned up the radio as they moved up the winding highway. Catherine leaned toward the dash speaker when the commercial ended. The young Conrad Ritter's voice clearly resonated and possessed a strong maturity. This is Conrad Ritter, and you're listening to The Conrad Ritter Show. Oh, no, said Catherine. Yes, Mr. Ritter, your subject is presidential politics. How can Senator Kennedy, with no foreign experience, perform the duties of President of the United States? Well, first of all, Senator Kennedy hasn't indicated whether he'll run for president yet. Oh, come on. Ma'am, let me finish. Secondly, I think you have to look at the man and his ability to make decisions. Look at PT-109. He saved his crew, for God's sakes. He's still untested. Nixon is a known commodity. He assumed leadership when the president had his heart attack, you boob. Ma'am, you're not listening. I said you have to judge the man. Well, the hound dogs are out there tonight. This is Conrad Ritter. We are out of time as we leave for the brightness of the day. I'm Conrad Ritter, and I'll be seeing you. He's very touchy. I think it's all getting to him. Let's see if he's on the air tonight, said Catherine softly. Ritter's voice again vibrated in the dash speaker as he pitched a local Italian restaurant. Catherine opened her eyes as Tucker flipped off the key. Roz made a grunting noise. What's the matter, Roz? I thought you were sleeping. I'm just sick of hearing the voice. Tucker leaned toward Catherine and Roz. I would bet Maritokas will head for the station and pick up the Golden Boy when the broadcast is over, he said, glancing at his watch. By now, Rizzo will know we weren't in that fair lane. How long do you think we have, Tucker? asked Catherine. No more than a couple hours. Then we better be quick. Sounds like you guys have some problems, said Benny. Tucker stared at him with an unusual intensity. Benny shrugged his shoulders and looked upward as he drove. Of course, that's your business. I don't want to say nothing. Way to be, Benny, said Tucker as he looked out the car window. The brightening sky silhouetted the tenements and houses all over the hill, yet the landscape lights flickered in the darkened city ahead. Benny signaled right and started up a long hill. South Village is right up here. Tucker, what about calling Jansen? asked Catherine. I know, I know. First things first, let's find Bud's car and get the goods on them. Again, he looked at Benny. I don't know nothing. Thin clouds and a brightening pale yellow glow spread over the morning sky. Dimitri blinked his watery eyes as he shifted the vet, bubble top in place, down Pilgrim Hill's long incline. Ritter had been wringing his hands ever since he got in the car. You are shaky on the air. You need to learn grace under pressure. Relax. 
Ritter spoke with his eyes crunched and his thick brown hair askew in the early morning light. Where the hell are they? I'm starting to get real worried, Dimitri. You know something? Dimitri puffed on the cigarette. I'm afraid I don't know. You're a liar, Dimitri. Very well, he said as he stopped at the corner and looked into Ritter's eyes. Nick hit their car. What do you mean? With a gun. He shifted at the light and turned west. More murders. Ritter hung his head. Where are we going now? I want some sleep. We're going to Brockton. Ritter looked at a number of folders and envelopes inside a box under the convertible space. What is all this shit? Important papers that I don't want Jansen snooping into. You don't worry about it, got it? Right, but why are we going to Brockton? He blew up their car, but they weren't in it. Dimitri accelerated onto the highway without signaling. Nick is headed back to Brockton right now. We're going to meet him at my apartment on Warren Ave around 8 o'clock. Then I have other appointments. This bullshit will be stopped right now. How did they survive a car being torched? How? Tell me. You should have destroyed Bud Kerrigan's car like we did the Nash Rambler. It's all going to come crashing down, Dimitri. Ritter banged the dash. Shut up, said Dimitri, steering with his elbows as he put the red-tipped cigarette lighter to the end of his cigarette. Then he accelerated up the highway without signaling. Nothing can be proved. Bud Kerrigan's car will be incinerated where they sent the Nash up in Dorchester. You said they had Sid drunk at the wayside. Did he ever sober up? Asked Ritter as he slouched in the bucket seat and pinched his brow. Yeah, he sobered up. Dimitri puffed on the cigarette. He doesn't remember if he told them where he sent Bud's car, but I'm going to assume that he did tell them. What about Jansen? asked Ritter. He seems to be the frigging cause of all of this. I'm aware of that. According to the lieutenant, he snooped around the Miles Standish reservation last night after the Freeman accident. I'm not taking any more of his shit, either. You can't kill him, too, Dimitri. That'll stir up everything. Dimitri raced past Sid's junkyard. I can't believe I shot two people I grew up with. You did what you had to do. I've done what I've had to do before, and we'll do it again. Now get over it. I just pray those bodies don't bubble to the surface. Dimitri pinched the cigarette out the car window and exhaled the smoke. I want to tell you something, and you'll understand this as you get older. You can be behind, like in a ball game, but you don't let it get to you because it won't change a damn thing, Sputnik. Stay loose, play well. Oh, easy for you to say. Dimitri glanced at him as the morning sun cut through the trees and across the frosty bogs. He put his sunglasses in place. I'll take care of this cowboy clown and his two girlfriends. What if they tell Jensen that Rizzo shot at their car and blew it up? Let him. He smiled as the sun rays grew brighter through the clouds. The farmer's fields, corn cut to the ground, were basked in the yellow light. The sun coming out is always a good sign. I am still worried about Jensen. Sput, you're about to own that radio station back in Plymouth. He signaled to take the road north toward Brockton. You'll have a daytime show, and then we need to start making plans about advancing your career. I know all the right people, and I know where you need to go to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Ritter sat back again and stared at the huge, puffy clouds. 
A gradual smile came to his face. Reader was all over me again last night, Dimitri. See, you're loose. Woman keep you loose, especially a guy like you who has high aspirations. Oh, that's just a dream. Wake up. It's in the bag. I have people backing me, people who know how to get things done. Jansen and these morons in the fort are just blips. They'll be gone, and your career will continue. You get some rest, relax, and let me do what I have to do. Chapter 31 Thanks uh, for the popcorn breakfast, said Tucker. Sometimes some breakfast is better than no breakfast. Benny slowed at the bend, where a high chain-link fence with barbed wire trailed upward. Hundreds of cars were terraced on the hill. Two movable gates were shut with an orange and black clothes sign wired into the links. Looks like you people have a little wait. Oh, we can wait. I'm sure they'll get here early, said Tucker, shaking Benny's hand. Then they piled out of the car. Catherine stretched her legs. Three German shepherds sat on either side of the gate. You can always try to get by the dogs, said Benny, laughing. Give them some popcorn. Yeah, right, said Tucker. Remember, I know nothing at all. I hope so, my friend, said Tucker. I'd hate to see you in that hospital rather than working in that hospital. <laughs> Welcome to Brockton, Benny's hand shook on the wheel. Then he produced a dumb smile as he pulled away. Tucker shook his head as a huge blue car shifted down the hill. That fighter, Marciano, he was from Brockton, said Roz. My old man saw him fight. Well, we may need the rock to get in this place today, said Tucker, checking his watch. 5.15 a.m. Stallone played Rocky, didn't he? asked Catherine. That was Balboa kid. He was the made-up Rocky. Marciano was the real deal. Let's see if we can find a way in here, said Tucker, pointing at the extended chain-link fence. He squatted down and checked for an opening in the grass clumps along the bottom. It won't be long until Dimitri realizes we aren't in that car, said Catherine. He's got to know that if we talked to Sid, we were looking for info on Bud's car. Ah, wait till the DA understands what happened to Bud's car, said Roz. The three dogs tracked them along the fence, and then with foamy, sharp white teeth rushed the fence. Get back to your cave, buster, Roz yelled at the first dog. All of you, sit! The three dogs sat in unison. Catherine looked at Tucker and then at Roz. Roz, how did you do that? After going out with Sid? The dogs growled at the mention of Sid's name. I can tell any dog what to do. Tucker grinned and then faced him. Okay, listen, here's what I'm going to do. You keep our boys, the German shepherds, busy, Rod, while I go around the other side of the yard. Can you scale that fence, Tucker? asked Catherine. He raised his left brow and smiled. <laughs> I'll snoop around. If anybody comes, you tell them you need parts for an Oldsmobile 88. And then you start looking. This place is huge. It could take some time. Tucker said Catherine, grabbing his elbow. Be careful. Always, he said, winking. Hey, canine breath, said Roz, shaking the fence. The first dog bared his teeth. Oh, tough guy behind the fence. Don't get him pissed off, Roz, said Catherine. What's he going to do, chew through the fence? Besides, we need to keep them away from Tuck. An hour later, the dog's ears popped up and they turned toward the front of the yard. Then they trotted back to the entrance. A single faded green truck, muffler aloud, chugged up the hill, and a heavy-set man with a red baseball cap exited the truck door. He wore denim overalls and waddled to the front gate. 
For several seconds, he fumbled with the key at the gate lock. Then he unhooked it and dragged both gates back, got back on the truck and drove inside. Ross led Catherine along the fence to the gate. The big guy went into a shingled house with peeling gray paint. Catherine and Ross snuck through the open gate. They slid between dozens of rusted car frames in the chain-link fence. The dog's barking broke the morning silence. A few moments later, the guy appeared in the doorway and carried two metal dishes down the steps. He opened a large label can with a manual can opener and let the thick dog food slowly fall into the dishes. Bombo! Bombo! he shouted. What the heck is Bombo? Roz pointed her index fingers. Probably dog food from his private stock. Roz and Catherine moved quickly over the hill. The area dwarfed Sid's junkyard in Carver. From atop the adjacent hill, Tucker waved his arms in a crisscross pattern. Catherine pivoted and jogged ahead of Roz over the uneven ground. Tucker shook his head as he descended the hill. I don't see Bud's car. This could take hours. I'm surprised Meritokas hasn't come up here. That would be his next move. He and Rizzo have to be somewhere around here. The city buildings, now catching the morning sun, backdropped several hills strewn with more stacked vehicles. There's hundreds of cars here, Roz. Tucker surveyed the yard with his hands on his hips. It may take a while, but we have no choice. I say we break it down section by section and try and find that car. Roz pointed with her index finger. Ten, eleven. There are twelve hills of cars I can see. We better stay together in case the hit squad shows up. Agreed, said Tucker, but we have to lay low. Catherine grinned. We find the car, then we call Jansen and put an end to all of this. Tucker wiped his forehead and checked his watch. 9.30. How many hills left, Roz? asked Catherine, leaning against a dented truck cab. Roz, sitting on a rock, looked up and held up two fingers. That's a lot of cars. Unless Sid lied and never brought the 88 up here, said Tucker. But I think he was too drunk to lie. Or it's gone, said Catherine. We sure could use some luck. Well, I could use a half a dozen chocolate donuts and some latte, said Roz, as Catherine helped her to her feet. She pointed to the cars piled to her left. Look, they crush them a little and then they make junk mountains. We still should be able to spot that damned Oles, said Tucker as he looked toward the tree clump ahead. Oh boy, here comes Bombo, said Roz. He's Bombo? The large man in the blue overalls brandished a rifle and walked with a guy in a leather jacket near the tree cluster in front of the house. They started up the adjacent hill but stopped near several wrecked trucks. Bombo shielded his eyes as he looked around the junkyard. Did he see us? asked Catherine. No, I don't think so. He's come back here, said Tucker, looking at the cars to the north. Where the hell is Bud's car? I know we're running out of time. Tuck, the Bombo squad is headed up here. Catherine turned as Tucker exhaled. The three men now hiked diagonally up the hill. The man in the denim overalls held his gun downward and continued to check the yard. Tucker motioned Roz and Catherine back along the fence. He dislodged the door of a white Chevy with no engine. Roz and Catherine crawled into the back seat. Leaves, empty quarts of Quaker State motor oil, and a few cardboard boxes filled the interior. The car reeked of garbage. Well, let's hope they don't come over here, said Roz, brushing the leaves off her sweatshirt. Phew, this car stinks. Stay down, said Tucker, and quiet. Catherine looked out the cracked windshield. The three men were less than 25 feet away and snooping under the hood of a blue Dodge. The conversation became clear. 
Why do you keep looking around, Roy? Asked the little greaser smoking a cigarette. And what's with that shotgun? Why don't you MYOB, you little goof? You're up here for an alternator. Ah, you're always saying you're no big-time people. Roy put the shotgun to his throat. Are you challenging me, Buzzy? Oh, come on, Roy. Don't go crazy on me. I just asked you a question, and you have a cow about it. Well, I get frosted every time somebody butts into my business, Buzzy. Come on, I have a 55 Chevy over here. Get your alternator and beat it. Tucker rolled his eyes and whispered, What a dummy. So Dimitri called him Tucker or he wouldn't have the gun, whispered Catherine into his ear. Tucker nodded and they ducked down as the two men passed just a few feet away. Catherine then popped her head over the dash. It's amazing they didn't come over here. We don't have much time, said Tucker in a low voice. Yeah, well, what about Roy the boy and his toy gun, asked Roz. Ah, he'll go back up front after he walks around the yard. Tucker waited 15 minutes until Roy and Buzzy appeared down the hill. Buzzy hauled the alternator behind Roy. Tucker kicked open the car door, producing a clunking noise as they moved into the outside air. Roz brushed her sweatshirt. What worries me, people, said Tucker as they began searching the cars wedged between the oak trees at the top of the hill, is why Maritokas didn't come right up here. He should have known that Sid opened his mouth at the wayside. My gut tells me he's up to something. Well, what about Rizzo? asked Catherine. He blows up our car and then he disappears? Tucker looked down at a leaf-covered gully near a stone wall. He raised his brows and his eyes lit up. Ah, here we go, Mama. He darted between the stacked vehicles and leaped down the hill. Between a cluster of towering oaks and a stone wall, Bud's green and white Chevy Oldsmobile 88, vivid in her dreams, blended into the tall grass. Fresh car tracks in the grass led up to the crunched front hood and the cracked windshield. Tucker jarred the hood back just as Billy had done only days ago. He leaned over the dented front fender. Well, looky, 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 said Roz. What about the brakes, Tucker? asked Catherine. No fluid. These lines have been hacked up, no doubt about it. Catherine peered at the clean engine under the twisted hood. Tucker opened the small double-humped brake box. He looked over his shoulder. Empty. No fluid. Then they really did kill Bud Kerrigan, said Catherine. Tucker's fist tightened. He stepped back. But will this hold up in court? Oh, it would, sure. I think O'Connor will want to know why this car was towed up here from Carver, said Tucker. And then he'll nail him for cutting the brakes. I think we have a good case building here. Catherine smiled and touched her fingers to the fender of Bud Kerrigan's new 1958 Oldsmobile 88. She pressed her lips. Jansen needs to know this. Tucker held her shoulders. Our dreams, Catherine, whatever this means, we'll bring them all to justice now. He put his arm around Catherine as they stepped away from the car. Roz raised her brows. Well, hi-de-ho. What time is it, Tucker? Almost ten. Let's get out of here. We're going to search Rizzo's apartment on Warren Ave. We'll call Jansen from up there. Roz rubbed her stomach. Hopefully there's food there like maybe donuts. They'd only gone a few feet from Bud's car when a motorcycle engine grew louder along the fence road. Tucker guided them to the ground. Nick Rizzo veered his bike toward the junkyard entrance. Ah, damn him, said Tucker. Is there another way out? asked Catherine. Not unless we can all climb the fence, he said, looking at Roz. Hey, what are you looking at? Rizzo slowed the motorcycle in front of the house and parked next to the truck. Roy burst out the screen door. 
Rizzo immediately pointed across the yard and shook his head. Then Rizzo grabbed him by the shirt, shook him, and pinned him against the shingles. Again, he motioned him toward the hill. Roy nodded and let the dogs outside. Rizzo, Roy, and the dogs advanced up the hill. Ah, the dogs, said Roz. Tucker pushed them down, quick, under the car. They crawled under the shell of a rusted black Cadillac. Rizzo's black boots passed within two feet of them through the grass. His clear and loud voice enunciated every word. Number one, I want the 88 out of here today. Destroy it. Hey, I just work here. You listen to me, shithead. Rizzo grabbed Roy by his overall straps. You get that car out of here before the sun goes down today or you won't see it rise tomorrow morning. And if you see anyone up here snooping, you call the garage and leave a message for me. Nick, just who am I supposed to be looking for? To a woman in their 30s and a guy a little bit older. Catherine opened her eyes. Tucker furrowed his brow and held her wrist. What's so special about that car anyway? You asked too many questions, brother, Rizzo shouted, and there was a smack and Roy moaned. Just shut up and get this shitbox the hell out of here. Rizzo pushed Roy and started back toward the house. Tucker waited a short time and then rolled to his right. He helped Roz and Catherine back onto the grass at the far side of the Cadillac. Rizzo and Roy were almost a hundred yards away, nearing the two-story house. We need to get to Warren Ave, whispered Tucker. Rizzo may go back there, said Catherine in a lower voice. No, he mentioned for Roy to call him at the garage, Roz said in a louder voice. Roz, they'll hear us. Oh, please. Okay, people, look, we need to move out now. I don't give a damn whether that moron is back at his apartment or not. They're down at that shack, said Catherine. Well, we go around the building. When Rizzo leaves, we simply walk out the front gate. Is that safe? Well, what other choice do we have? He escorted Roz and Catherine across the yard. As they looped behind the house, she leaned around a metal downspout. Rizzo started his motorcycle and spun the rear tire in the dirt. The sound of the bike faded inside the fence back toward the city. Tucker guided them along the house, and as he had guessed, Roy paced near Bud's car up along the hill. Catherine held Roz's hand as Tucker leaned around a dented drain pipe. He nodded, and they simply walked out the front gate. Well, where the hell are our friends, the Bombo dogs? If they are out during the day, said Tucker, as they exited the yard, they'd chew up all the customers. I don't need those canine choppers on my rump, said Roz. After Warren Ave, we're heading over the DA's office right here in Brockton, said Catherine. Tucker looked over his shoulder and then continued forward. And then goodbye, Ritter. Tucker stopped at the drugstore payphone. He deposited change and waited as the line connected to Jansen's house. Mid-morning shadows dissected the parallel boulevard separated by a central sidewalk with streetlight poles to the top of the hill. Roz checked the map they had just purchased at the drugstore. This is Legion Parkway. Warren Ave is the road up top. We need to go left on Warren past the high school, number 537. Catherine crossed her arms as a cool breeze kicked up the parkway. I hope Rizzo stays at that garage and doesn't go to his apartment. This is John Tucker. I need to talk with your husband. He's out at what camp? What? Drowning? That can't be. Tucker's eyes moistened and he held the phone by his side. Then he lifted the receiver. Wendy, you expect him back. You tell Danny I think Freeman was murdered at that camp. Catherine's eyes opened wide and Roz got up off the sidewalk. What did you just say to her? 
Tucker repeated his words to Mrs. Jansen. You tell him Dmitri Maritokas murdered Freeman or had him murdered. How do you know this? Catherine asked, but Tucker looked away. Mrs. Jansen, please tell him we found Bud Kerrigan's car at South Village Salvage Yard in Brockton. The brake lines were sliced. No fluid left in the car. They're going to try and get it to Boston and destroy it. Danny needs to move fast. We'll call back. He set the phone on the hook and turned. Freeman was murdered last night. Catherine closed her eyes and lowered her head. Maybe the only witness to Ritter shooting Shane and Billy. Roz hugged her shoulder. We'll get them, Catherine Marie. She looked up at Tucker's unshaven face and luminescent blue eyes. Tucker? Maritokas is hiding paperwork because there was nothing in Plymouth. Let's hope it's up here on Warren Ave. Chapter 32 Loud cars rumbled down Warren Ave, trailed by the sound of squealing brakes and stinky green buses. Tucker had said nothing as they moved rapidly in the cool air down the sidewalk. They marched under the trees, some smattered with red and yellow leaves. Tucker finally broke the silence. At some time, Maritokas must have been aware of Ritter's talents. Somewhere, he heard a broadcast. I wonder when it was. Or somebody just told him about Ritter, said Catherine, walking beside him. And then Ritter just let him handle his career, said Roz. You know how you are when you're 18 or 19 years old. Right, said Tucker, moving along the crosswalk next to the street. He not only saw the talent, but he knew what he could do with it. And he knew Ritter would get on board that train. Purchasing the station was just the first step in developing Ritter's career and assuring Maritokas and his backers of future holdings. Oh, what a sharpie, said Roz. Tucker pressed his lips. Oh, I have a healthy respect for Mr. Maritokas' abilities. We may be searching for nothing in this apartment. Or, Tuck, said Roz, we may just get lucky. Nick Rizzo's name, handwritten on a smeared white card, jutted out from the enameled mailbox slot. Catherine's knees weakened as she checked down the sidewalk. Tucker had circled twice around the natural shingle two-story house. Hope Tucker gets in that window. Roz pointed to the map. Right here! There's the courthouse on Belmont Street. O'Connor must be just a few blocks back. We passed it down the street from that donut shop. We'll get what we can find here and then just head back. O'Connor will flip when he realizes we have the proof. The worn steel knob twisted and the white door opened. Tucker raised his brows from inside the apartment. Do I know you two? Unfortunately, yes, said Roz, and he smiled. Tucker, how did you get in? Had to realign the uh, back window over the sink. He busted the window, said Roz. The front of the apartment was painted in a deep peach hue. Cigarette smoke hung in the cool air. A single brass lamp with a fluffy taffeta shade overlooked a ripple gray sofa positioned under a gold-framed painting of Boston around the turn of the century. The cooler air flared in through the broken glass over the sink. In the sink were two mugs. Tucker held the mug. Coffee and still warm. They weren't here too long ago. Oh my God, said Catherine. No, that's good, said Tucker. They probably won't be back for a while, I hope. Tucker started down the darkened hall and flipped a wall switch. There were two bedrooms on either side of the hall with a bath at the end. 
Roz, said Tucker, I need you on guard by the front window. I don't want our friends showing up here unexpectedly. Roz saluted and marched back to the living room. Yes, sir, Tuck. The bedroom on the right had a single mattress with a crumpled green blanket. A white dresser with open drawers had clothes hanging out the side. More clothes were on the braided rug. Tucker checked the backyard window. Okay, let's see what's in the other bedroom. Like you say, said Catherine, there may be nothing there. He pushed on the locked door, and then he kicked it open with his boot. The front window blinds were closed. He brushed a light switch, illuminating a rear alcove with a roll-top desk, a chair, and an oak filing cabinet. Tucker had a touch of sarcasm in his voice. Well, well, well. You okay, Roz? My stomach is growling, she called back. We found a desk. Well, 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 said Roz, laughing. I'm missing out on all the fun. Tucker grimaced as he attempted to raise the oak top. He stepped back and kicked with his boot heel again, splintering the corrugated surface. Then he pushed the oak top up the track. Dozens of little drawers and alcoves were inside. He motioned Catherine forward. For the next 15 minutes, they rummaged through the inside, but only found an assortment of rubber bands, pencils, pens, and paper clips. The top drawers contained lined paper, but both larger bottom drawers were locked. Tucker grabbed the side of the desk. Stand back. He rocked the roll top. The desk tipped and then crashed onto the rug. He kicked the rear of the locked doors, jarring the locks loose. When he lifted up the desk, rubber bands, pencils, pens, and paper clips scattered across the floor. He easily opened the right drawer, and Catherine pulled open another drawer. Numerous manila envelopes and papers were piled inside. He bent back the metal clips holding some of the papers. The crisp reports were fresh with ink. The company headers were not familiar to Catherine. This is strange. Dimitri is employed by the Spartacus Insurance Company, according to these documents. Catherine dragged the drawer onto the top of the desk. Old photographs were strewn amidst crunched invoices for saltwater fishing equipment. A few photographs of the dark-haired Dimitri were placed in wax paper. In many photos, he sported a mustache. His eyes were dark and he never smiled. Nothing incriminating in working for an insurance company, said Tucker, carefully placing the papers back in the desk drawer. Catherine lifted up the black telephone off the rug. A round plastic circle inside the rotary dial read JU69045. This is the number on Bud's log. Of course, this is the place. Maybe we should just let the cops handle this, Tucker. Going to the cops might give Maritokas time to regroup. Bud Kerrigan called this number all the time. Tucker stared as he thought. This apartment is the perfect place for Maritokas to store his stuff. Catherine nodded, then looked down the hall. Everything all right, Roz? Where are my donuts? called Roz from the front of the house. I'll buy you a whole box when we get out of here, said Tucker. Tucker lifted the oak chair off the floor. Let's go through every one of these envelopes. Don't worry about putting things back in place. For the next 15 minutes, Tucker ripped apart the manila envelopes while Catherine pilfered the other drawer. Routine legal documents, some from New York and New Jersey, indicated Meritokas' clients and legal experience. Tucker looked at his watch. There's nothing in here that O'Connor can use legally against Meritokas. 
Catherine handed Tucker an 8x10 black and white photograph someone had penciled in November 14, 1957. That date is familiar, about a year ago. I don't understand. Tucker flipped the photo. Dimitri, casually dressed, stood with a short man with glasses and a hat. Behind both men were dozens of large, shiny automobiles. Tucker squinted as he studied the picture. Oh my God, that's Joe the Barber. Who's Joe the Barber? His picture was taken to the Appalachian meeting of La Costa Nostra. Joe the Barber was the boss of the Bufflino crime family. How do you know that? My old man drove a truck all over the country for half the guys at this conference. This meeting was full of mafioso. Over a hundred guys from Italy, Canada, and the U.S. were at this meeting. And your father? No, Dad was somewhere on the road, but he always talked about this conference because so many guys he hauled for were nabbed by the New York State Police. And Dmitri Maritokas is right in the middle of this with the guy that hosted it. Apparently he got out of there before the cops raided the estate. Tucker furrowed his brow. We're dealing with one powerful man. Hey guys, what did you find? Any donuts? Asked Ross as she leaned in the doorway. Not enough, said Tucker as they moved toward her. There is a second floor, said Ross. Hey, I'll go back to my lookout position. Catherine hugged Ross at the front window. Then she and Tucker bounced up the winding staircase to the second floor. A set of stairs led to the attic. Tucker tried the doorknob. That's nah, locked. Now what? Let's try the attic. Tucker ascended the stairs into a darker area. She heard a crash, and then the staircase brightened as she moved upward into the stuffy air. Slotted louvers provided minimal light, but a clear light bulb at the roof pitch illuminated the area. The roof board slanted downward. A truck and stacks of boxes and a few crates were stacked over boards positioned along the rafters. Books were scattered on the boxes. Tucker shuffled through the books. He looked over his shoulder as he lifted a thick gold paperback book, Atlas Shrugged by Ann Rand. He opened a business card in the middle of the book. Pleasant Valley Real Estate. Houses, rentals, land, 617 Shire Road, Bud Carrigan, Dimitri Maritokas. It's got the phone number underneath. Tucker held the card with both hands. Pleasant Valley. Let me see that, said Catherine as he handed her the card. There has to be more up here. Under the sloping roof's protruding nails, Tucker tore apart the cardboard boxes. What do you see, Tucker? Nothing more paperwork. Leave this for O'Connor. Let's get out of here. If we didn't talk to Mrs. Kerrigan, we never would have found this place. Tucker squatted down in front of a row of sealed cardboard boxes to the right of the louvers. Attorney? Dimitri Maritokas, legal documents and land transactions from Newark, Trenton, 1955-1956, the Garboli family. What a surprise. He pointed to more boxes on the plywood sheet spread across the floor joist. Catherine, stop looking through the other boxes. Catherine tugged at a string wrapped around a smaller box. Earlier documents from 1951 and the late 40s contained additional land and real estate transactions in New York and New Jersey. They sifted through the papers but checked every few minutes with Ross at the downstairs window. How do we take them on? asked Catherine, wrapping the box with string. We don't. We just go to O'Connor with what we have on Meritokas and Ritter. The rest of it is none of our concern. Then he stood. 
We mentioned nothing about New York. It'll only complicate things and probably bring in the feds. Let's get the hell out of here. Tucker, his fingers on the light switch, looked at Catherine at the stairway. She saw the tip of some Nello envelopes tucked within a box in an often area in the insulation under the louver. Tucker, wait. What's the matter? She brushed back the insulation and removed a single 9x12 manila envelope. Tucker rifled through the surrounding insulation and found three or more envelopes of varying sizes. He swatted his hand through the insulation and then pulled, them, then pulled himself back. Hey, are you guys all right? called Roz from below. We're all right, Roz. We're all right, shouted Catherine. She unwound a string, securing the envelope. Inside, she found typed documents alluding to vague financial references she did not understand. When she plucked a green ledger page wedged between the deposits to a bank in Newark, New Jersey, her brow shot upward. Tucker, 80 grand, right here, September 15th, 1958. Let me see that, he said, leaning over her shoulder. This is the golden goose, Catherine, this is the golden goose. Tucker thumbed through the clumps of papers as she stared at the deposit slip. She envisioned Bud handing over a box or an envelope of cash to the fast-talking Dimitri. Dimitri must have driven his little Corvette at high speed to the train station and then headed to New Jersey to deposit Bud's savings. Oh boy, said Tucker. He held a neatly typed document with a raised brown header on crisp linen paper. Gelbert and Gelbert, 16 East Franklin Street, Boston, Mass., Telephone Andrew 86838, Capitol Hill, a proposal, October 10, 1957. Tucker, this is it. We have the bank slip for the 80 grand. Yeah, the whole deal is right here. Very clever, these people. She hugged Tucker and stuffed the bank slip back in the envelope. Let's get out of here now. Roz, we've got them, we've got them. Tucker pulled the light chain and she started down the stairs. Roz! All clear on the western front, she said, turning from the window. Catherine raised the envelopes. Eighty grand, a bank deposit in New Jersey. And the Capitol Hill proposal, said Tucker. He conned Bud Kerrigan is what he did. Meritokas is a professional. And once Ritter killed Billy and Shane, they had him too. Unfortunately, now Freeman is dead. Let's go, Tucker, said Catherine, looking out the window. They're all done now said Tucker, and they hurried on to the first floor stairway. Over and out, people. Traffic moved along with no mind to what had just been discovered in the upstairs apartment. Several school buses slowed for the turn down the street. Catherine's excitement, mixed with an intense anxiety, sparked her nerves. Tucker increased his pace on the sidewalk. As Roz lingered behind, Catherine gripped the envelopes until her knuckles whitened. I have to think Billy and Shane would have eventually found Rizzo's apartment. A motorcycle engine cracked in the distance and then accelerated down Warren Ave. Oh, damn. He pushed them behind a tree. Seconds later, the red Corvette headlights flipped up approached from Main Street. Tucker had already begun leading them across the side lawn as the motorcycle skidded to a stop at the apartment. The Corvette spun around 180 degrees on the street. Roz shouted something. She had slipped on the lawn about 30 feet behind. The Corvette rolled onto the lawn and turned. Ritter steadied a dark handgun out the window. He fired three times and hit Roz. She stumbled to the grass. Splatted blood coated her gray sweatshirt and then she lay motionless. Roz! 
Ritta swept his gun toward Catherine and Tucker. He aimed again as the Corvette sped up. Tucker locked his arm around Catherine's arm and shoulder and leaped into the bushes. He held onto the folders and envelopes as more bullets cut the tree leaves and chipped the tree bark ahead. Tucker dragged her forward and then catapulted over an adjacent porch railing. The railing broke apart as more bullets tore up the grass and dirt. The Corvette fishtailed onto the street and then backed around the corner. Catherine wailed and pleaded for Tucker to bring her back to her fallen friend, but instead he wedged the folders under his arms and threw her over his shoulders in a fireman's carry. He hauled her through an adjacent backyard toward another row of tenements on the next street. Tucker, we have to get to O'Connor, said Tucker as he breathed heavily. She's dead. She's dead. Tucker lowered Catherine to the pavement and shouted, Listen to me. Listen. We're going to backtrack to Main Street and then to the DA's office. We're talking about you and me staying alive. Do you understand? Yes. Yes. Okay. The Corvette's tires spun on the adjacent street and veered back toward Rizzo's apartment. Tucker held her hand through the backyards. The traffic moved steadily as they rounded the corner. Within the view of higher buildings downtown, Tucker approached the Main Street sidewalk. Phone booth. I'm dialing Jansen. Murderous! Murderous! Damn murderous! With the folders under his arm, Tucker dropped a nickel into the slot and quickly had the operator connect to Jansen's line. It's ringing, said Tucker, listening. Hello, hello, Mrs. Jansen, this is John Tucker. I need to talk to Danny now. This is an emergency. The Corvette skidded diagonally onto Main Street. Tucker! Tucker dropped the phone and propped the folders and envelopes under his armpit. More shots in quick succession shattered the phone booth glass, but he and Catherine were on the cement between the newsstand supports. They crawled into an alley, emerging along a hardware store loading dock stacked with push mowers and rock salt. She and Tucker leaped up the stairs and into the store stockroom. They dodged a key-making machine and ran past a side register and rows of tools along the wall inside the store. Between the store merchandise on the floor and the long front window, the Corvette passed the newsstand and disappeared down the street. Tucker kicked the front door and slid with her below the sidewalk awning. Across the street, a hundred yards back, a bulky bridge hummed at the corner. The bus, said Tucker. They ran across the street. She gasped when she heard the motorcycle again. A spectacled gray-haired driver pulled back on an inside lever and opened the bus door. Tucker pushed her up the stairs and swept her into a seat, but she kept her eyes outside. Tucker! Ross! Ross! She cried into his shoulder. The bus engine hummed. The driver checked the side mirror and pulled slowly away from the curb. The DA's office is less than a mile away. Ross did nothing! Nothing wrong! The Corvette hovered at the hardware store corner. A few people on the bus turned. There he is! There he is. Ritter. Ritter did it. I saw him do it. He killed Roz. The bus lumbered down Main Street and the Corvette trailed slowly behind. Tucker grimaced. How would they know we picked up this bus? Why are they following us? He can't know we have the Capitol Hill documents. And Roz is lying dead out there. I know. I know. Outside the rear window, the red and white Corvette moved at the same speed as the bus. Catherine's jaw jutted out and her eyes filled with tears. She exuded hatred in her clear and deliberate proclamation. 
I am going to kill Ritter myself. I will. Tucker rubbed his teeth against his lower lip and again pulled out some of the Capitol Hill papers. It's all here. The proposal and the deal for Bud's money. As the bus slowed and turned right, the Corvette's blinker brightened white. Catherine whispered, Tucker, I see them. Tucker looked over his shoulders, shoved the papers back in the first envelope, and wrapped the string in place. He took her hand and rushed up the aisle to the older driver. Where's this bus headed? Our main terminal is across from the fair. The fair? You know, the Brockton Fair. Midway, rides, agricultural displays. Ah, see that Corvette behind us? The driver pushed his glasses up the bridge of his nose and squinted at the side mirror as the bus continued up the road. They're trying to kill us. His blue eyes opened wide. You are joking. No, no joke, partner. They murdered my friend, said Catherine, her throat tightening. The driver's kindly face contorted briefly and he licked his lips as he stared into the side mirror. Then he rubbed his chin. Okay, listen, stay up front here. I'll open the doors when I slow up. Run directly into the fair entrance. I'll block the car with the bus. You'll have time to get inside and find the cops. There should be cops all over the place. Good, good, thanks. Hey, are are you the good guys? Asked the driver, moving his bushy white brows. I hope so. We haven't killed anybody, but they have, said Catherine, wiping her eye. A prodigious Ferris wheel rotated slowly as the crowd moved in flux along the arcades and games of chance at the fair. Tucker guided Catherine down the steps and closer to the bus door. The driver checked the mirror and leaned over as he positioned his hands on the large wheel. I'm going to bank right and slow, but I won't stop. Jump out when I open the door and run like the devil into the fair. We won't be going that fast. Tucker nodded and the driver reached for the door lever as his foot brushed the brake pedal. He adjusted his silver glasses and glanced at the side mirror. The Corvette signaled at the corner about a hundred feet behind them. Tucker held Catherine's shoulders near the door. I'm scared. I don't want to die. You ain't gonna die. We'll find the cops and put an end to this nonsense right now. Catherine's shoulder briefly touched the door glass as the driver swung the bus to the right. He gripped the handle and pulled the lever. The thin folding doors separated and the cool, fresh air rushed inside as the brakes squealed. Tucker signaled at the driver and took Catherine's hand and winked at her with a reassuring smile. She bent her knees above the passing asphalt. Ready? Go! They were airborne only a few seconds and landed running on the hard surface. Carrying no tickets, they hurtled through the gate turnstiles and onto the midway. She heard the ticket takers shouting as the bus chugged away. The Corvette's tires screeched and the little car slid diagonal to the main gate. Along the midway, Barkas called out for the passerby to participate in games of chance, and the smell of onions and fried foods permeated the air as they ran. Behind a cluster of people throwing darts at colored balloons, Tucker anchored his feet, stood upright, and scanned the area. I don't see any cops or just somebody in charge. Where the hell is somebody in charge? The popping balloons made her crazy. She covered her ears and peered back toward the entrance. They'll kill us. I know they'll kill us. He motioned her back along the midway toward the towering Ferris wheel. Bright blue and red gondola cars transited on the slumping cables down the midway. The Barker's cadence continued over the noisy crowd as Catherine and Tucker darted frantically. 
have to find a damn cop. She looked over her shoulder as they ran. Ritter knows we're in here. Tucker stopped at a ride, pressing screaming people against the outer edge of a rotating red and yellow line drum. He surveyed the area. Back at the gate, Dimitri left the ticket booth with Ritter. He stopped next to a small roller coaster and panned the midway. Tucker pulled her behind the crashing bumper car's pavilion. Sparks sizzled against the metal contacts along the electrified metal ceiling. All right, let's play it cool, Catherine. He checked behind the bumper car area, took her hand, and jaunted toward the long funhouse. Bizarre noises and muffled music shot out the crooked front door. A line of people waited beyond the little ticket booth at the end. Tucker slid the money under the ticket booth's brass bars. The woman inside handed him two crisp blue tickets. He rushed Catherine past the people in line and bounded up the metal stairs. The shadowy-eyed Ritter sprinted ahead of Dimitri along the bumper cars as Tucker pulled open the funhouse door. She pushed away the canvas curtains into a darkened area. Ghoulish, luminescent faces flashed out of the blackness and loud, wailing ghost noises echoed ahead. We have to stay put. Let them look down the midway. Ross. Oh, Ross. A group of kids passed them onto an uneven surface inside the funhouse. Catherine fought to keep her balance as Tucker held her shoulders. As the funhouse patrons gasped and laughed, Tucker kept her at an adjacent corridor entrance for another ten minutes before proceeding through the bright strobe lights as ghoulish figures popped out of the darkness. Neither Ritter or Dimitri appeared in the area when they reached the cooler and noisy midway. Ross's smile and dark eyes filled Catherine's thoughts as she looked upward at the wispy clouds in the blue sky. Tucker, the envelopes and the files firmly in his right hand, led her down the stairs until they blended into the crowd. Tucker looked up at the gondolas. We need to get up on those cars, but then we can see the whole fair, locate the cops, and then move. This is so awful. We have the goods on them, Catherine. We'll find a cop, and then it's all over. She continued cautiously along the midway rides toward the gondola ticket booth. She felt something hard against her back. When she turned, Conrad Ritter's penetrating gray eyes peered down at her. He thrust a small revolver into her ribs. Put the gun away, Ritter, said Tucker. We can talk. Oh, you'll talk and you'll tell us everything you know. I guess you win, Ritter, said Tucker, dipping his head, but he swung his boot into Ritter's hand and the gun flipped across the asphalt. He pulled Catherine up the stairs into the Hall of Mirrors and easily slipped into the first reflective corridor. Ritter retrieved the revolver and stormed up the stairs. His eyes were frantic as he concealed the gun and entered the mirrored passageway. Tucker seemed to understand the maze and took steps to the left. Incredibly, they stepped outside again, but Ritter remained trapped inside. He smashed into one of the mirrors, grabbed his forehead, and gritted his teeth. Amidst his muted grumbling, a wood-grain gun handle hung out of his slack's pocket. Uh, he'll love looking at himself with all those mirrors. As Ritter pounded on the maze glass, they hurried along more games in a motorcycle racing dome. They reached a ticket booth under the gondolas. Tucker paid the woman, and with two additional blue tickets in hand, he directed Catherine to a ramp where the car swung around for the repeat trip around the midway. He handed the tickets to the red-faced man with a stubby cigar. The guy flipped the retaining bar, and they sat down on a soft vinyl seat. 
The car kicked, and with her feet dangling, Catherine rose with Tucker above the crowd and rides below. Ritter continued to flare at the glass inside the Hall of Mirrors. Over there, said Tucker, pointing beyond the balloon game. Dimitri, his gun hidden, directed the crew cut Nick Rizzo up the midway. I should have known Rizzo would join them. Now what? As they both scattered through the crowd, the little gondola car inched upward along the twisted cable strand high above the asphalt. Well, we look for a cop. She swung her eyes from the midway to a sloping grandstand supported by metal girders. A smooth dirt track formed an ellipse around deep green grass. Beyond the track, the sun highlighted the main building's white cupola and a number of canvas agricultural tents below. Across the street, city buses moved into a brick terminal building with a white-faced clock tower. Catherine finally spotted a police cruiser behind a pen housing black and white cows near the tents beyond the racing track. Tucker, where? By the tents, I see. Ritter finally extricated himself from the mirror maze and now rushed along the midway sideshows. Dimitri passed the turnstiles and reached the open area at the racetrack while Rizzo folded his wide arms over his blue shirt near the Ferris wheel. Okay, we head behind the midway rides along the grass and we race out to that couple of buildings. She closed her eyes as the car dipped downward on the cable. Tears meandered down her cheeks as she continuously pictured Roz bloodied on the grass. She reached for Tucker and cried silently into his coat. The police cruiser sped toward them, but she could not shake the persistent feeling of being under siege and wondered what it would be like having her body pierced by bullets. Tucker, Tucker, if we don't make it, Tucker produced his familiar half-smile. With a reassuring wink, he pulled her head against his chest. The car pitched about 15 feet above the turnaround. Rizzo remained on duty at the Ferris wheel ticket booth as the gondola moved under a red and white canopy. Tucker pushed up the retaining bar before the kid attending the cars could lift it. He grasped her hand, hurried down the wood ramp, and skirted the crowd. They scampered past a cotton candy machine and leaped over a cluster of black electrical cables behind a fleet of rounded silver trailers. Once on the grass behind the trailers, Tucker stopped and looked back across the racetrack. He pointed toward the cruiser near the end canvas tent. Three cops spoke with each other on a rope fence surrounding the cows. Catherine did not see Dimitri near the grandstand to her right. We run toward those clump of trees by the cupola building. Then we followed the tents down to the cops. A piece of cake. She smiled, took his hand, and jaunted across the grass. The odd, stalking feeling returned once they were in the open. The dirt exploded near the trees, and a muffled gunshot sounded from an unknown direction. Catherine screamed as more bullets hit the ground. Tucker brought her back from the trees up the hill. Her sides ached, and air pushed into her lungs as they paralleled the main building. Then the gunfire stopped. The alerted cops, guns drawn, sprinted onto the grass. One cop grabbed a walkie-talkie microphone. Tucker cupped his hand as they approached the tents. They're shooting at us. They're shooting at us. Over here, behind the cruiser, yelled the gray-haired cop. We're being stalked, cried Tucker. Catherine extended her hands against the cruiser fender. Well, where are they? Asked the cop, looking at the other cop on the cruiser radio. Who's stalking you? Tucker caught his breath as he spoke. Three men, shot with greasy, dark hair and a yellow jersey. Another one, dirty, blonde-haired guy, taller, red checkered shirt. Okay, okay, take your time. 
Guy with a crew cut had a t-shirt. Hefty guy. Dark hair and sideboards. Got that, Tommy? Got it. As Tommy spoke into the mic, Catherine squeezed Tucker's hand. The cop faced them. You have the names on these individuals. Dimitri Maritokas, a lawyer from New Jersey. The man named Nick Rizzo lives on Warren Ave in Maritokas' apartment. And Conrad Ritter, the radio kid from Plymouth. Billy, give these people something to drink. Another cop ran toward one of the tents. Catherine scanned back to the grandstand and was unsure, was unsure whether Dimitri would continue his attack. She made a conscious attempt to stop hyperventilating and squeezed Tucker's hand. Can't believe we're still alive. Tucker struck a match and lit a tipperillo. Then he shook out the flames, smiled, and exhaled a flume of smoke. We got him. O'Connor, dapper, in his camel hair blazer and dark slacks, carried his black leather briefcase into the DA's third floor office in downtown Brockton. He popped the brass locks and raised the envelopes and files in his hand as Catherine sat next to Tucker on a green leather sofa. A few of his staff said they had brought the written statement she and Tucker had given to the police at the fairgrounds. She reached for her demitasse tea on the side desk. Despite the tepid water, she savored the deep black tea. O'Connor cleared his throat. This is an extraordinary report. Are the cops still looking for him? asked Tucker. I haven't changed any orders from the police department. Catherine set down the small cup and swallowed the tea. They killed my friend. Conrad Ritter shot her in cold blood. Yes, I see that on the report. I'm sorry, Miss Jenner. He set down the paper and for a few seconds his face remained blank, but his bushy brows slowly compressed. He slid behind the cherrywood desk and removed his gold pen. I want to go over everything, you know. They'll try to get away, man, said Tucker. O'Connor pressed his lips and put on his bifocals. I'm aware of that. What about Bud Kerrigan? Catherine shook her head. Get Dan Jansen on the phone. Well, not right now. Glancing at the older, husky cop to his right, the guy jotted something in his black notebook. Tell me what you know about Bud Kerrigan, Miss Jenner. You make it sound like we're the ones being investigated here, said Tucker. What's, what's to tell, said Catherine. His car, the Plymouth 88, sitting in the junkyard in South Village, was moved from the Horowitz yard in Carver. We already told you that at the wayside. But now we can tell you that we saw the drain brake fluid. And what about that scoutmaster Freeman from Plymouth, asked Tucker. We did check into that, said O'Connor clearly. I'm afraid that was just an accident. Oh, cut the bullshit, shouted Tucker as he stood. O'Connor raised his voice. Sit down, Tucker. Tucker gritted his teeth as he sat in the chair. He crossed his legs and leaned back. Listen, Bud's niece and her boyfriend, Billy, started looking into the accident. Billy knew about the brake lines being emptied. And Shane was aware of Capitol Hill, said Catherine. What, what's that? asked O'Connor. What do you mean, what's that? Tucker growled. We told you all that. Maritokas came to Plymouth with the native son, Conrad Ritter. 
Their express purpose was buying the radio station down there and advancing Ritter's radio career. To do that, he conned Bud Kerrigan out of $80,000. The sale of that station is pending, and they'll pay for it with Bud's money. Sounds as if Shane and her boyfriend should have minded their own business, said O'Connor, pulling the documents out of the first envelope. Bud was her uncle. Yeah, said Tucker, pounding his fist on the table, and now they're dead. Shot to death by Ritter. O'Connor's face soured. You have a very uh, active imagination, Mr. Tucker. You're brushing us off, cried Tucker. Catherine leaped from the chair. Mrs. Crowell, down by the water, heard two shots. She thought it was a car backfiring. But we think she heard the shots that were fired at Shane and Billy. It was the shots that were fired said Tucker, standing. That damn Ritter had them cornered at the rock, and then Friedman was just killed. Right. Freeman had the only yellow Studebaker in the area. He must have seen Ritter's Volkswagen, and Mrs. Crowell heard the backfire. O'Connor laughed and then looked up from the document in his hands. <laughs> well, I'm sorry you have no bodies. This isn't funny, said Catherine. Those kids were dumped in the bay, said Tucker, weighted down. Right. Mrs. Crowell later heard the boat motor, said Catherine. Well, that's pure speculation. What kind of a DA are you? O'Connor's forehead wrinkles tightened as he smiled. I commend you on your work. You have accomplished what Dan Jansen had only begun. Well, you should be able to throw the book at them when you find them, said Tucker. Again, O'Connor smiled and stood. I don't think so. What do you mean you don't think so? shouted Tucker, moving toward him. Any one of these things should warrant them being prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. O'Connor turned toward the open door. You can come in now. Catherine slowly stood as Dmitri Meritokas, wearing a lightweight white jacket and his, and his gun drawn, entered the office. A smirking Conrad Ritter and an arrogant, grinning Nick Rizzo followed him inside. Oh, my God, cried Catherine, raising her hands to her mouth. Well, a pleasure to meet you up close, Catherine, said Ritter. You made a fool out of me. Tucker held her back as she swung her arms. What the hell is going on here? asked Tucker as he dragged her back. What's going on here is you're both going to be killed, said Ritter with no emotion. And you know what? I will personally send your bodies to the bottom of Plymouth Bay where you can reside with your compadres. You son of a bitch, shouted Tucker as he rushed Ritter, but Dimitri thrust his revolver outward. Tucker slid to a stop and breathed quickly as he spoke. You're all damn murderers. You too, O'Connor. So harsh, Tucker, so harsh, said Ritter, smiling. You people didn't have a chance. I just don't know how you figured it all out. Or why, asked Dimitri. The truth will come out. O'Connor pushed the documents back in the manila folders and handed the folders to Dimitri. Don't count on it. Dimitri glanced at the folders. He had a condescending tone in his delivery. Well, I admire your prowess and persistence in breaking into the apartment. I feel compelled to set you two straight. You don't confront power. You only succumb to power.
No way you'll get away with this, said Tucker. Oh, I will. You and Joe the barber. Dimitri's dark eyes opened with a fearful intensity as he looked up, turned back, and gazed at O'Connor as he spoke. I'm afraid Mr. Tucker here has learned a little bit more than we thought. You're a member of La Casa Nostra. Who's your operative, Tucker? Santa Claus. We'll find out. Ritter at the door laughed as Catherine's stomach jolted. All her thoughts scattered as she rushed by him. You killed Roz! You killed Roz! Ritta swiped her with the butt end of the gun, cracking against her cheekbone, and her knees buckled. She heard Tucker scramble and yell, but Rizzo lunged at him with his gun drawn. Tucker backed away from three guns pointed at his head. I'll get you, Ritter. I'll get you. Enough, yelled O'Connor, leaving the room. Get rid of them now. Catherine sat up and tightened her queasy stomach as Tucker held her arm. He ran his fingers near her throbbing cheekbone. Are you all right, Catherine? We should have known. We should have known. Of course, he pays, he pays off the DA. Out of here now, said Ritter, fanning his gun. You're a mighty brave man with that gun, Conrad, said Tucker, standing. He helped Catherine up. Shut up. What are you going to do with us? asked Catherine, holding her cheek. You killed my good friend. Well, if she had minded her own business, she'd be alive right now, said Ritter. Dimitri stepped forward and waved the gun. Enough talk! Get everybody out of here! Everybody out! Dimitri stood with O'Connor by the elevators and pointed at one of the documents from the Manila folder. He mentioned something about WXBN and told O'Connor more money would be delivered to him. They stepped inside when the elevator doors opened. The truth will come out, Mr. O'Connor, said Catherine. The district attorney did not respond, but Dimitri produced a slight smile. The elevated door slowly closed. Then he faced Catherine. Not in your lifetime, Miss Jenner. Incredibly, in this horrific scenario, Roz has been killed. Catherine and Tucker move forward, try and prosecute Dimitri and Ritter, but the district attorney stands in the way. Join us next week for the finale of The Butterfly in the Deadly Storm. This is Robert P. Fitton. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.com.